Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2021. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. Thank you for joining us today. Export business development on a large scale, global basis can be challenging unless you have the right network of experts in place. Our guest today is a leader of one such organization. His name is Sherwin Pomerantz, and his company, ATID EDI Limited, is a part of a very experienced global organization known as IBG Global. He's going to explain all this to us today, and I am just so excited to be able to speak with Sherwin, who joins us from Israel. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by IBG Global LLC. Hello, my name is Peter Sanders, the IBG Global LLC partner handling the Benelux. And the Benelux is Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. IBG Global LLC is composed of a group of 21 partners in key world capitals overseeing 62 staffed offices, providing access to over 200 markets. In business for over 15 years, our associates worldwide can provide market entry assistance to exporters the world over, as well as a range of other services, which include foreign direct investment promotion, operating trade missions, and encouraging joint ventures, to just name a few. However, the best way for me to explain IBG Global LLC and what we do is to share a story with you, a story that illustrates something we here in the Netherlands have accomplished recently for a US-based exporter. The company, headquartered in Pennsylvania, is an important North American player in the field of specialty plate, different types of stainless steel used in different industries. The company was producing some incidental sales in Western Europe, but felt there was far more potential. First push was toward finding an industrial agent with knowledge of the stainless steel market. That wasn't easy. But after we successfully completed the task of finding a competent industrial agent with knowledge of exactly that market, the stainless steel, and active in various international European markets, our client asked us to deliver sales support by assisting the newly signed agent in finding leads. We then applied our, our package service called Leads to Business based on the effective outreach through LinkedIn. We managed to generate six leads within four months, equaling roughly 200,000 worth of sales, a number that exceeded the total net sales of the previous year. Within the framework of IBG Global LLC, our partners worldwide can provide this type of market entry assistance to any interested US manufacturer, and we welcome your outreach. You can find us at ibgglobal.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Without further ado, let me introduce Sherwin Pomerantz. Hello, Sherwin. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be with you. Uh, We really appreciate it, given the time difference and everything else. Thank you. Um, So, Sherwin, um, as I introduced you, you, we know you're a resident of Israel, but you have deep and long connections with the U.S. and Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with the U.S.? Sure. Well, first of all, you can tell by my accent that that's where I was born. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was born and grew up in the the Bronx in New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, Went all the way through college in the Bronx, actually, and uh, came out with a degree in industrial engineering. People won't believe this today, but I couldn't get a job because in those days, people said, well, you know, you're not really an engineer. So I went to my father and I said, uh, I think I need to get a master's degree in another field. And in those days, you know, parents were not so forthcoming with money and support as they are today. And he was a good father. And he said to me, look, he said, I got you through college. He said, I left school in ninth grade. He said, I got you through college. You want to go to graduate school, figure it out. So that was really my exit ticket 
from, to leave New York. I got a teaching assistantship at the University of Illinois, uh, actually in the mechanical engineering department. I had enough credits and I went to Champaign. I got a, I, I picked up a lot of things in Champaign. I picked up a, uh, a graduate degree in mechanical engineering. I picked up a wife. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a bad deal. Uh, I came on campus the first day and I went to see the uh, uh, the rabbi at the Hillel Foundation, and I right before the holidays, I said, do you need some help? And he said, sure, let's go to lunch. And after about an hour, he said to me, uh, you have a girlfriend? And I said, I just got here. I mean, you know, this is 800 miles away from home, right? In, yeah. in the times when people weren't getting on planes right away and flying places. He said, I have somebody for you. I said, seriously? He said, yeah. She's the president of a fraternity, of sorority. She's the president of Hillel. Wow. I think it did well. So we got married about 15 months later. Uh -huh. And uh, unfortunately, she passed away quite young, relatively. Oh. But uh, yeah, so champagne was a great thing. Uh, I was also an ROTC commissioned officer in the U.S. Signal Corps. Mm -hmm. uh, so after a couple of years teaching there and in champagne and getting a degree, I then went into the into the Army, mm -hmm. my active duty. Uh, I was lucky there as well. They, uh, I, I was never the kind of guy that you would want to send overseas with a rifle. Uh, <laughs> didn't, you know, my physique and my my outlook didn't really match that. So oh. they put me, they put me at NASA in Cleveland. Actually, they sent me to NASA as a practicing uh, mechanical engineer and military liaison, if you will, to the yeah. space administration. And I spent uh, two and a half years in Cleveland, also taught at night in Cuyahoga County Community College, which mm -hmm. was just beginning at that point. I taught engineering, drawing, and descriptive geometry. And then after two years with NASA, decided I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. Yeah. And I actually got a job with a firm in Chicago that manufactured bearings, brass bearings, as their marketing manager. And that was what brought me to Chicago, where I spent the next 20 years. Uh, four or five years with them, and then the rest of the time running a data processing service bureau in the days when people didn't have laptops on their desks. Uh, right. Then in 1984, decided, why don't we give Israel a chance? And uh, we basically closed everything up, sold the business, sold the house, got rid of the cars, and picked up everything we owned and came to Israel. I didn't have a job, but I got one yeah. very quickly very quickly with a solar company. Uh -huh. And we were, we were building solar power stations in the high desert of California, Southern California. And we built uh, nine power stations over the course of six, seven years, enough okay. power to generate city of Washington, DC, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of magnitude. Right. And then, and then that'll get me to our present business. They went out of business uh, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And a few of us started this business, as you said, it's called Atid EDI. EDI was originally Economic Developers for Israel, but the government here didn't like that name. They thought it sounded like a government agency. So we kept the logo and dropped the name. I see. Uh, and uh, that business has generated uh, basically into a uh, international business development group. Mm -hmm. We represent a lot of second level governments. So. Um, we're the regional representative of Pennsylvania and Illinois and uh, Minnesota, Delaware and Virginia and Cedar Park, Texas and Washington, D.C. Um, and Hong Kong and West Hong Kong and for a while off and on the uh, province of Ontario, uh, the Ukrainians. We basically help companies there, wherever there is, in this case, the United States. Yeah. Uh, do business in this region. So we're, uh, for want of a better term, professional matchmakers, but we're not putting married couples together. We're putting <laughs> businesses together. And right. the advantage we have is that uh, we're really honest brokers. We're not being paid by the companies. So we're being paid by the state of Illinois or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania oh, on a basis to do this work. And so we're not prejudiced one way or the other as to, you know, forcing a deal to happen. It doesn't benefit us at all, except to keep the client happy. Right. Uh, that's a good model. That's a very, that sounds like an excellent model. Yeah. So, and uh, it is, it's a model that's there now, I think, about 
30 states that have one or more, best kept secret in America, I might add, yeah. about 30 states that have one or more offices overseas. Right. And, uh, it doesn't matter where I go. If I get off the plane in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and the taxi driver says, what are you doing here? And I say, well, we represent the state in the Middle East. They'll stare at me and say, we have somebody in the Middle East? And I'll say, well, you have people in 14 different locations around the world. Oh, really? I never knew that. Yeah. No. That's a secret. It is. It is. And it's so effective in helping uh, the companies in that state make connections. I mean, that's what it's about. So, so you're a partner of a large, large organization called IBG Global, or, or do you go by IBG Global now? Can you kind of explain the relationship and the sure. history of the organization? Yeah, interesting actually, because IBG Global uh, generated from the fact that a number of us who were Pennsylvania representatives around the world were uh -huh. sitting in Harrisburg one day about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. and just looked at each other and said, you know, we're being paid by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to represent them, but that doesn't prevent us from doing business with each other. So why don't we just put together a referral network where, you know, if I have somebody looking to do something in, in Europe, well, I have colleagues in Europe in the network who can help me make that happen, and wherever in the world. So yeah. we, we began this uh, sort of... Uh, loose network mm -hmm. of companies like ours around the world, uh, which has now uh, grown into an actual LLC. We're a Delaware res registered LLC. We have uh, 21 partners worldwide in every major market. And we have 62 staffed offices today. A lot of us have more than one country that we deal in mm -hmm. and basically cover 200 world markets. So. My colleague, let's say in South Africa, has uh, eight or nine people around the continent in different countries in Africa. We operate out of Israel. Uh, we cover Turkey, Israel, Jordan, UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, you know, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Um, our colleague in Singapore uh, handles Malaysia and the Philippines and Vietnam and Thailand. And, and that's how the system of Australia also handles New Zealand. Um, our colleague in, in The Hague handles Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg. Uh, some people are one country uh, partners, our, our people in Canada, Mexico, but our colleague in Brazil handles much of, much of the uh, South American continent. So uh, that's become a very uh, interesting model. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, so that's right. the IBG and and my colleague in South Africa and I are sort of the founders, co-founders of the organization. And mm -hmm. administratively, we run it out of here. I see, I see. So IBG Global has a part-time employee here in Israel. Uh-huh, for administration. As we speak, is in Portugal at the Web Summit on behalf of Hong Kong. A third of his time is devoted to IBG Global. I see. Um, now, so for instance, in the introduction, in the sponsorship, you heard yeah. from uh, Peter Sanders, right? Who was our colleague in the Netherlands. Okay, right. And how much of Africa do y'all cover? I'm just curious. Well, out of out of sub-Saharan Africa, covered out of South Africa, pretty much the entire continent. We okay. cover Egypt and Morocco mm -hmm. in northern Africa. There's mm -hmm. not that much going on in Algeria, Libya, somewhat in Tunisia. Yeah, uh, but it, it, they're not very active countries for us at this point. What Morocco, about West, I'm sorry, I was going to say, about, what about West Africa? What's going so on? So West Africa is a bit more challenging. Richard covers that out of out of South Africa as well. Mm -hmm. uh, he does have people in, in Nigeria and Ghana, right? They're they're more challenging areas of the world because of the history of dealing with those countries, you know, but. You know, all of them, I mean, Africa at some point uh, will be a bigger economic power than China. And well, it's going to be sooner rather than later. Well, they have the resources. Uh, I have this theory that water is going to, in the future, water is going to be determinative and where 
the power, the political economic powers are in the world. Uh, but uh, that's just my own personal theory based on not a lot. Um, well, there's probably a corollary to that. In other words, I, th I think I agree with your statement. And, and we knew here, for instance, in Israel, that we had to become water independent right. and couldn't rely on the weather. And we are. I, I, we desalinate um, about 80, we recycle about 85% of our water. And much of our water is desalinated water coming from the Mediterranean. Uh, so we're not really dependent on rainy seasons or that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so that's one aspect. But the other aspect, which is actually of bigger concern and a bit more frightening, is because of climate change, large mm -hmm. swaths of North Africa and the Middle East are going to become uninhabitable. I could be, I believe that. Yeah, they're going to be huge. It's already beginning. You're seeing significant population shifts because... People, you know, you can you can blame or you can let's not blame. You can be unhappy about the number of people from the south of, of the United States who are trying to get into the United States. But yeah. if you get past the politics, they're doing that because they're living in uninhabitable places, either because yeah. of lack of water or lack of opportunity or lack of economics, whatever it is right. that drives people to move. Absolutely. I personally, it frustrates me how many people in the U.S., for example, that do not understand or accept the issue, I mean, the, the severity of the climate change that's happening right now under our eyes. And I don't mean to get on a soapbox, but I just, I continue to encounter smart people that just aren't accepting of of the fact, it's a fact. <laughs> Look, you have had, in the last month and a half, you have had two airlines with uh, significant cancellations because of climate change. Right, right. Okay? You're talking about American and Southwest or you're talking yeah, about other? Yeah, yeah, American and Southwest. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I watch the NBC nightly news every morning. Mm -hmm. It's a 15-minute shot, and I get a sense of what's happening in the United States. Yeah, that's and, good. And every week, every week, there, there are major uh, yeah. weather issues and, and you know, flash flooding and people drowning exactly. in cars. And not, it's not once in 100 years. It's every week. Somewhere. I know. I know. Uh, as I understand it, I mean, we're getting a little bit off topic, but uh, as I understand it, the migration... And this really goes back to what you were just saying a few minutes ago in North Africa. The migration from Guatemala to the United States is directly uh, related to drought that they had last year. Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure people understand that, but I think it's, it's just a big global issue and it's going to affect population move and all that. Yeah. I actually think, I mean, it's not really the topic, but it's so interesting. Yeah. I actually think that it goes back to 1945, and at the end of World War II, mm -hmm. the the victorious nations of the world chose mm -hmm. to for, chose not to pay attention to what they knew even then was going to be a major problem, and in, what they did with those parts of the world that are now drying out mm -hmm. or drying up is mm -hmm. they cut them up, they cut them up politically. Right, but they didn't address the fact that at some point they're gonna have to they're gonna have to look at the water situation. Right. So it was all you know predictable, and I think the leadership just chose not to not to acknowledge it, and they can get away with it. They got away with it for seventy years. Do you have uh, clients, U.S. clients, or clients of states that work in the environmental areas? Um, do you deal with some of those industries? Yeah, we have, look, one of the, uh, sometimes people say to us, you know, where do you have expertise? And I say, look, we don't have the uh, option to be experts because yeah. basically we have to handle any company that comes to us from a client state. So right. it could be high tech, it could be low tech, it could be ag. We did a, a huge mission last week from the uh, Western United States Agricultural Trade Association. Mm -hmm. 21 food companies from the West Coast looking to export their products to 
to this region. Um, so, uh, so we do, we have dealt with a number, uh, especially being in Israel, since we are uh, so far advanced in the, in the area of climate control and, and addressing some of these issues and, uh, you know, maximizing agricultural yields. And, and, you know, when you talk about these things, you have to talk about them in the broadest sense, because everything is interrelated. And uh, even though we may not, for example, we don't, we don't build cars here, but we're incredibly involved in the technology behind the dashboard. Okay. And people know to come here, every major uh, U.S. car manufacturer has a research operation going on here. Right. Oh, yeah. Not for the cars, but for the, you know, for the, for the technical side, for the, uh, you know, the, the uh, automatic driving and all these other issues. I mobilize. It's an Israeli product. Waze. They're all Israeli products, even though we don't make cars. So yeah. we do deal with a number of companies that are in the, uh, the green tech field, if you will, uh, ecologically or what have you, water, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, water management. A lot, of, a lot of American companies are involved in water management issues. Yes, okay. we've had one, uh, we've had one uh, podcast episode with a, a U.S. company about that issue, and I think it's fascinating. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how your services work uh, within the markets. How, how do you do that? Yeah, so basically, uh, as I said, we're in principle, we're matchmakers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, effectively what we do for most companies is we try to get a sense of who they are and what they're looking for and what their vision is of an importer distributor or joint venture partner or development partner. Uh, and then based on that understanding, then go ahead and look at this market to see what, who we can come up with that matches that. Mm -hmm. And it can be, uh, the breadth is incredible. We're working right now with a company out of the East Coast that has a, a new medical technology to assist doctors in treating patients who are bleeding out. And they're not looking for an importer distributor. They're looking for somebody to do a, uh, a, a, an actual clinical study here. Oh, okay. Through the human value, they've tested it on pigs, but they haven't tested it on humans. Okay. Why, why do they come to Israel? Because we have more experience in treating trauma and what have you than on a per capita basis, oh, probably yeah. than any other country in the world. Right. So they came to us, say us, Israel, mm -hmm. through their state organization saying, you know, maybe you can find a hospital that's interested in doing a, a clinical study. And we actually have one that's mm -hmm. quite interesting. Interesting. So that's where we have value. In other words, we've been in the market for years uh, and, and we can provide them with that kind of service. In, in this case, the state is picking up the bill, but we can do it for private companies as well directly. Uh, we had a situation where a company uh, was looking to get into a market where language is a problem. So they were looking in the Japanese market. Mm -hmm. Here, here in Israel, we don't have any, but we have a colleague there. So we introduced them to the colleague. Uh, the colleague did a market study for them mm -hmm. to see whether the product that they had had potential traction in that market. It was clear that it did. And so then the company said, well, okay, maybe we'll hire some salespeople in Japan. And our colleague said, big mistake. Why don't you let us hire the salespeople and manage them for you? Oh, right? wow. And, and that's what they're doing, all right? The Japanese colleague of IBG is managing the sales force for a foreign company. And this has been going on now for about seven, eight years successfully, okay? Yeah. So, you know, the, the model is not a static model. The model is not, you tell us this, we will do that. Okay. In the case of American companies, for example, with Israel specifically. Mm -hmm. So there's a US-Israel Binational Industrial Research and Development Foundation that will fund joint research between an American company and an Israeli company and pay half the cost. And it's not a liability on the part of either company. And if it 
generates a product that they can sell, mm -hmm. then it's paid back out of royalties. If it doesn't succeed, it disappears. I see. All right. Uh, and, and they'll fund up to 50% of a $2 million project. So, so a lot of, yeah, a lot of what you do is, is the connections that you know about the, those, you know, like, like the organization that's, that's performing the, that research, you, you know about correct. those. Correct. And, and help people vision, even in this, in this medical case that I mentioned, that's a potential bird found, it's called the bird foundation. That's a potential bird foundation product, project, because yeah. you have, you know, a startup in the United States with, an, with a, a legitimate organization in Israel that might be working together to bring a product to the market. And that binational foundation is willing to fund that kind of research. Very okay. interesting. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. So, you know, we also help people uh, deal with the cultural differences. Yes. Okay? We had a situation some years ago, uh, there was a Pennsylvania company that we set up with an importer distributor in Jordan for their product. Mm -hmm. And they came back to us about a year later and said, you know, they really don't understand. Uh, it's just not selling. And they asked us, the next time you go to Amman, can you meet with the company and see what's going on? So we did that. We went to the company. It was a, a, a woman-owned company. And she was sitting there, a big picture of Jerusalem behind her desk. And we asked her about what was going on. And she said, well, she said, uh, their product is expensive for this market. And she said, I raised it with them. And I said, and what did they say? She said, the Pennsylvania company said, meet the competition. Right. Right. I said to her, and what did you do? She said, I called them. I called our competitors when we went to lunch. She met the competition. <laughs> he met, made the price, right? He, that's right. Because in America, the vernacular would be meet the comp, whatever the competition is, meet it. <laughs> she, she for her it's a second language she took it literally <laughs> i you should know? laugh but that is no, it's, it's, funny. It's, it's what happens you know my daughter when we first came here 38 years ago uh went to the to a, a takeout place and she wanted to get uh, you know a package of, of, of potato of, uh, of fries so fries here are called chips okay so, so English. She said she wanted chips to go. So she said in Hebrew, Aniru said chips lalechet, because lalechet is to, to go, to walk. Okay. And the guy looked at her, you know, we don't have chips that walk. Okay. <laughs> what you really want is takeaway. Right. The Hebrew word is takeaway. Oh, that's so funny. Word, right. So if you said, uh, or chips to go, if you said chips to go, they would know exactly what you want. But yeah. if you say chips alechet, this you know we don't have chips that walk. Yeah. Right. And right. So the, you know, so you get into the so we help people with that as well because uh, there are cultural differences that they just don't understand. And okay. and some misunderstandings can be very expensive. So absolutely. Right. I've, right. I've, I've always yeah. explained that to yeah. my clients. Yeah. Um, so let's talk for a minute about. COVID and the disruptions in the global supply chain and how that is, if, if it is affecting your everyday business, how is, how is that affecting what y'all are so doing? So COVID, COVID has, has affected our business. I said to somebody the other day, we're living in unprecedented times. In other words, there's no model in our lifetime, no. all right? I mean, I could take a philosophical viewpoint and say, this is the normal way the world has operated for 3,000 years, and we just lived in an area of time where it was subdued. But right. having, but that may or may not be true, but it is unprecedented in our lifetime. So we're seeing things that, that COVID was the catalyst that made it happen. Right. So for example, yes, there is this big supply chain issue, and we've got, you probably got a flyer, we've got a, a major webinar coming up on November 30th, 
mm -hmm. uh, actually with the author of uh, the author of this book, uh, Transforming the Global Supply Chain, mm -hmm. two people out of Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area who seem to be now the American experts on this. This is the third webinar we're going to do with them. Yeah. Uh, and so they'll look at it because you know about all the ships anchored off the coast of Los yeah. Angeles, Long Beach, and and the and the impact that has in the trucks not enough trucks to take the containers when they get there and the manufacturers don't have empty containers to ship stuff back and there are thousands of containers sitting in the port of Shenzhen in China and right. no way to get them out it's yeah. just all around okay right uh, so that's the direct effect of covid but the other effect of covid and I'll just give you some quick examples of this mission we just got through with. I've never seen this before. In one case, we had an American manufacturer that we set up meetings for. And when we sent him the schedule, he said, you know, I'm not gonna take these meetings. He said, I should never have gotten involved. He said, I don't have raw material. I don't have staff. He says, I can't take more business. All right, 30 years in business, I've never heard that before. All right, that's yeah. on that side, okay? Yeah. Yeah. On our side, uh, last week, we had a number, a number, more than one, of local importers who said, you know what? We don't know where the world is going. We have no idea what's gonna happen next year. We're not really in a position to talk to somebody about taking on a new line because uh -huh. we just don't know where we are. Talk to yeah. us in the spring. Then we had other people who said, you know, now we're dealing everything virtually. Well, sort of zoomed out. Oh gosh, yeah. I, know. I hear that. Yeah, I and I, I'm not sure I wanna devote, you know, six 20 minute time slots to meeting six companies on Zoom. Why don't we just make an email introduction? And then we had that on the US side when we set up the schedules. Yeah the majority of those companies that we were working with yeah. said, forget the meetings, just make the introduction and we'll deal on email. Huh, interesting. So when you say, you know, the effect of COVID, there are, uh, you know, collateral effects. Absolutely. Right? The, the global supply chain issue is a direct effect. And uh, we, we married off a granddaughter a month ago and I was, uh, sitting talking to my wife's ex who was here for the wedding and he's a he's in the plumbing supply business in new york uh -huh. he said and he said it's very clear he said used to be when a container came into the port i had it the next week now if i'm lucky it's four to six weeks from the time it gets to the port it's unbelievable said, it used to be it cost me twenty five hundred dollars for a container from china to new york he said yeah. now it's ten thousand dollars I know. Oh, uh, I was talking to a friend in the steamship business who's, who's cause I, I started there, but uh, he's been there a long, long time. And, you know, he was talking about the Christmas, uh, some, some of the companies, the U.S. companies, their Christmas trees are still on the water. They probably won't get here in time. Right. But right. another issue he was talking about is the steamship companies have decided to uh, impose another uh, penalty or rate hike if a you know container is stuck in the port for a certain amount of time. Well, you know that's to me that's an old solution to a problem. Let's just raise the rates, and that's going to fix this complex uh, transportation issue. It's trucks. It's it's warehouses. It's it's not just raising the rate to the to the uh, consumer or the the manufacturer on their container. I, I I was surprised to hear that, but not. I guess what really um, made me think is that some of these brilliant people in these industries haven't come up with any new forward-thinking solutions to a really new problem. And it goes back to how much manufacturing was concentrated in Asia and, you know, a lot of things, but... Um, and the whole just-in-time concept in terms of deliveries, which, you know, everything 
it's, it's a great system if everything works exactly as you intended to work. Exactly. If nothing works the way you intended to work. <laughs> it isn't. It and, isn't. And for me, you know, for me, the disappointment is on a different level because those people that you're referring to who are up on top of some of these big corporations and what have you, they, they were smart enough to have been able to see this a year ago. In other words, they knew that when they were reducing staff and cutting capacity, that at some point the economy would come back at some level and the demand would be there again. So where was your planning to deal with that? Right, I agree. Right? Exactly, exactly. I... And it just, it wasn't there. And no. so what they're doing by raising these rates, it's a very socialist approach. You know, in a socialist society, uh, the boss is always protected, the seller is always protected. Right. Uh, Israel, I, I said to a fraternity brother of mine today who called me from Miami, I haven't spoken to him in years. I said, I, I think a lot about why America is so afraid of socialism. And, I, and here, we were a socialist country. That's and became right. capitalist in 1985, July 4th, 1985, yeah. the world changed over, literally overnight. And, and But what we did is we kept the good parts of it. So we have universal health care. Yeah. And, and no court in this country will evict a person for not paying a mortgage. Not going to put anybody on the street, ever. Wow. wow. Okay. So, so, but it's a capitalist country. Right. But, but, you know, we have poverty, but you don't see people sleeping on the streets. And you don't see people short of food. Whereas in America, you've never had the socialist experience. So you're afraid of that and understandably so, but, but you see pieces of it and raising the prices because you know what's happening, that's a, that's a socialist mentality. Well, the social safety net here, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, those are socialist. They are, they are. But, uh, it just, uh, people haven't adapted their thinking to how we can take that into the future and, and be good for the economy. I right. mean, well, because it became political. In other words, yeah. it, isn't, it isn't what's best for the world, for the country. Right. It's, well, he, he wants, I don't agree with that guy. I don't. And I'm not professing socialism or, or no, anything no. particular, but I'm just saying we already have it. And, you know, a lot of people depend on it and, and there's a way to take it into the future. Uh, so anyway, and that is really off topic, but it's so interesting. Uh, so what I'm gonna ask now, if, if you don't mind, is to share some stories about IBG Global that'll, you know, just give us some examples of what y'all been doing and- Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the, uh, the strength of IBG Global, of course, has been uh, the depth of our capability because uh, we have reach into so many different places in the world and can uh, capitalize on that reach. Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, I, I mentioned earlier that uh, one of my associates is in Portugal this week. So this morning he met with somebody from Armenia who works for the for Enterprise Armenia? Never heard, never knew there was such an organization, but makes some sense. And they're developing a foreign direct investment attraction program. Mm -hmm. So he sent me a note right away. He said, maybe we can teach them how to do this. He said, this person doesn't know anything. You know, they never even thought about what that means. Uh, and we have that capability. We have a group within IBG, for example, that does executive training. All right, the the German, our German colleague. Uh, was actually just in Kuwait last week for a project like that. Yeah. Uh, so it, even if if one person in the network doesn't necessarily have that capability internally, we've got the capability in the group to be able to to go in that direction. Uh, there's, some, there's some interesting stories over the years. You know, one of the things we always hear as a company, because we represent a number of U.S. states. Mm -hmm. is, you know, how do you avoid the competitive nature if you're dealing with seven or eight states? And one of the examples I use is actually an export story 
at one point some years ago, we started with California. That was our first client state. And uh, at that point, we were, two years later, we were also representing Georgia. There was a California Chamber of Commerce that received an inquiry from this part of the world where we were working for them. Mm-hmm. Somebody was looking for an exporter of halal meat, Muslim certified meat. Huh. And uh, the chamber was in a small community in, outside of Los Angeles, had no idea what to do with that. They sent it to us. Said, well, you guys are over in that part of the world, you know, see what you can do. It was actually from Jordan, it wasn't from Israel. So we looked at it and we checked out the platform in California. At the time, there was nobody in California that was slaughtering meat with halal certification. But we represented Georgia at the same time. And Georgia did have a company that was slaughtering halal meat. So we then went to the Georgia company once we cleared out the issue with California. I assume this is similar to kosher. It's, it's. Yeah, it's uh, not quite at the same. Uh, Let me, uh, in other words, we cannot eat halal certified meat, but they can eat kosher certified meat. Okay. Okay, because the kosher level is a bit stronger. I guess. Of of what you, what you can and can't eat and how you slaughter the animal and all the rest. Okay. The theory is the same. So we went to, we found a company in, in Georgia that slaughtered halal, asked them if they were interested in hooking up with an importer in, in Jordan, which they were. And they ended up with a, with a customer that was buying three, $400,000 a year worth of meat from them. So here you have a classic export story, you know, that, that shows the connections. That right. Jordanian company goes to they don't know anybody in America. So they sent a letter to this chamber of commerce, not the Los Angeles chamber, not <laughs> Atlanta, not Chicago, but, you know, a small, com- there's a, actually a small city uh-huh. near Los Angeles that only has officially 500 residents. During the day, they have 50,000 people working there. They must have put a thumbtack yeah. in a in a map yeah. or something. Only 500 people actually live there. Say a small chamber. Yeah. So the chamber gets this from Jordan. They don't know what to do with it. They yeah. may, you know, you know Americans in geography. They may not even know where Jordan is. But they knew it was over there where we are. Yeah. So they sent it to us. And we find that nobody there can do it. But we know somebody somewhere else that can do it. And That's so we bridge, you know, that request. And, and you end up. you know, making a a decent business opportunity for an American company that may not even have ever thought of the possibility to export, which is the other challenge, because as you know, uh, significantly less than 5% of American manufacturers export. All right, so there's tremendous potential there. So that's the kind of stuff we see uh, all the time. Uh, We had a company some years ago, actually in Pennsylvania, that uh, came to us to see if we could find importers true for the product. And uh, we found somebody here who was interested, but they weren't interested in that product. Mm-hmm. They were interested in some variation that used that technology as a base. Okay. And the American company was, was receptive to that. And they said, okay, you know, we will spend some time doing some research and see if we can create the product that they want, which they did, and they ended up selling it and selling significant quantities. So again, it's an issue of flexibility. And, uh, uh, you know, if you're selling chocolate chip cookies, then you're selling chocolate chip cookies. But even chocolate chip cookies, we had an exporter in New Mexico some years ago who made a really good line of dietetic cookies. Mm-hmm. And we got them uh, an importer in the UAE. Now here, I'll give you an example of the other obstacle that we often have trouble with when it comes to American exports. So every country in the world has their own labeling requirements. Right, right. And our advice to American exporters is don't get involved with this. In other words, we will find you the importer distributor. Stay away from the labeling issue. 
let the person on this side of the ocean yeah. deal with the labeling, deal with the issue of local authorization. If it's a food product, it has to be tested yeah. by the Ministry of Health every time it comes in, all that stuff, don't right. deal with it. But, you know, some people think they really know more than anybody else. <laughs> no way, no way, yeah, not clients. <laughs> not, not anybody you know, right? So the exporter in New Mexico said, no, no, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna create the label. And what they did is they went online to the, you know, whatever government authority there was in the UAE, and there was instructions. Unfortunately, the instructions were three, four years old. And they created a label and they shipped a container of goods. It was 30, $35,000 worth of dietetic cookies. And it got, to the port in the UAE and the UAE wouldn't let it in. I'm shaking my head. I've, yeah, and they wouldn't let it in. And you know, then what, then what happens is the company calls the embassy and they try to, you know, go around the issue. Those cookies never got into the UAE. They never got there, all right? We had a situation here years ago where somebody was taking Corona beer out of Mexico. Mm -hmm bringing it into the United States and then reshipping it and claiming to Israel, because we have a free trade agreement. At that time, we had one with America, not with the US, not with Mexico, mm -hmm. and, and wanted it to come in here duty-free because of an American product. And the authorities here said, but it's not an American product. It's Corona beer. It says on the bottle, made in Mexico. Yes, but we packed it up in a different kind of a case and all the rest. And I remember they got involved with one of the people from the embassy here it didn't help them. It didn't help. Them. You can't, I mean, there are some situations that are just crazy. Uh, during the first Gulf War, there was a Rotary Club in America that uh, bought, uh, you know, stuffed animals to send to the kids here. Yeah, yeah. And they sent a container, a full container of stuffed animals. They didn't ask anybody. They didn't check. They just said, we're going to do this. It got to the port and the Israeli authorities said, we want 17% VAT on the value of the animals, of the, of the toys. They said, yes, we're not, we're, but it's not for resale. Well, you know, in most parts of the world, there's an assumption of guilt. America has this great concept that we assume you're innocent until proven guilty. <laughs> in most places in the world, they assume you're, the government assumes you're guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. So, Anything that comes into this country, for example, the government wants their 17% VAT. You, you say you're not going to resell it, but they don't trust you to not resell it. You've got, you know, 4,000 stuffed animals. Temptation is great. So by the time that stuff got out of the port, the war was over, and the kids, you know, were back in school and all the rest. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you have to think about it, Okay. Uh, there are practical issues. We, we ran across a company once in Wisconsin that had a great line of um, dressings, food dressings, you know, uh -huh. thousand gallons, and, yeah. and it was in an aerosol, like an aerosol can. Huh. And the kids, the kids loved it. You know, yeah. you pick up this little can and you squeeze yeah. it, and that way you get your tomatoes. <laughs> so I said to them, maybe we can find somebody for you in Israel. They said, we don't even want you to try said, why? So I'll tell you why. The stuff's too heavy to ship by air. Uh -huh. He said, if we put together a container, he said, we don't know where on the ship that container is going to be stored. Right. He said, that container ends up on the top level. Mm -hmm. And that ship is traveling six days across the Atlantic Ocean in the sun. Yeah. He said, what's inside those aerosol cans will be worthless. Oh, because the heat inside one of those containers yeah. can get to 120, 130 degrees easily. Well, refrigerated yeah. containers are supposed to control temperature, but they Correct. are- Correct. So, so yeah. I, said that, I said that to him and he said, yes, but then the problem is it's so much more expensive to do that. It makes the product Absolutely. you know, yeah. too high. So there are so many practical issues that come around here. Uh, what we say to American export is, is we're on the ground here, just as our colleagues are on the ground everywhere where they are. Listen to them, right. okay? Don't sit in Chicago and tell me I know better what's going on in Israel or in, in right. Saudi Arabia or in the UAE than you do. 
Right. We may not know everything, but there's no question we know more than you do. <laughs> that's so, right. Well, that's, you have your selling experience in a way you could say that. Uh, so, uh, and and you obviously have so much experience. And I just, uh, I wish we could go on and on, but I, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am to you for sharing your stories and, and explaining who you are. And, and uh, it's just been, it's just been really fun uh, talking to you. And I thought really interesting. Well, it's our pleasure. And we're happy to help any, you know, since I, I assume that the bulk of your listeners at this point are still in the United States. Yeah. Any of them that are looking to take advantage of the opportunities worldwide, and and there are a lot of opportunities everywhere in the world today. Right. The world still still has a great respect for American-made products, it's and true. Uh, and and even uh, you know gourmet processed foods. Remember that every country in this part of the world has a food security issue. Right. right. Almost yeah. every country in in where we are in the Middle East. Yeah imports a tremendous amount of food because it doesn't produce enough for its own people. Right. And in most places, there's also some money around. So they're, they're happy to bring in some, you know, higher, higher quality products as well. So the opportunities are there. Absolutely. And we encourage American exporters and manufacturers to take a look at that. And we're here across the world to assist them. And, you know, they can use us as the funnel into the rest of our colleagues. We're happy to do that. I, that's excellent. And what I'm going to do, we're going to have an episode page on our website and we'll have links to your website so people can get in touch with you and have those discussions. So um, listen, thank you so much. And to our listeners, we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode and general discussions about exporting. So please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com. And you can, uh, you know, leave your comments on this episode page. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we'll, uh, you know, as I said, we'll, we'll make uh, a website a link available to uh, Sherwin's uh, organization. So thank you so much. This was really great conversation. And thank you, Sherwin, for being with us today. Our pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. You bet. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 